So what we'll do, uh, today, you came to a great one, man. I'm so excited for y'all. I'm so excited for y'all. So today is our last conversations uh, class, and today's topic is on um, religious pluralism. Now, some of you have no idea what that word is, or have never encountered that word, or had anybody experienced that, but there are a lot of, um, there are a lot of different religions that are in the world, and even represented in our city. And there are a lot of folks who are navigating uh, what to do with that. And I'm interested in our panels and, and our, our panel what they have to say about this, but it is interesting to, to see the um, young adults and people who are older and to see them kind of come aware, hey Josh, Sorry, I'm late. To come to, to become aware of these different um, kinds of religions and how they decide to interact, how to, how to interact with them. And so I'm gonna let our panel kind of like just go at it from whatever angle they want to go at it from. But I'm interested in this conversation because this is something that our neighbors, that our coworkers, that our friends, that our family members are dealing with right now, which is how do we. Uh, decide which, which, which path to take. And for some, they take multiple paths. And many paths. And I'm interested to see what our panel has to say about that, too. So, it all makes sense once we get rolling, but I, I think you're going to really enjoy it. So, what we'll have our panel do in the way things work is they'll introduce themselves, tell what they do in the city, etc. And then after that, they'll come back through and then they'll give kind of an opening thought, comment, perspective on this idea of religious pluralism. And then once they have done that, then it'll be your turn where you get to ask questions, make comments, interact with what has been said. Now, I'll say this as a disclaimer. Um, I lead silent retreats. That is part of what I do here. So you can't out-silence me, people. I can out-silence you for sure. So when it's time for you to chat, chat it up. Um, because that's what makes this thing great. So, uh, otherwise, I will go into my center and be with the spirit, and it'll be awesome. So, either way, it's a gift to me. So, uh, I'm excited you're here. Okay, there, is there more chairs in the closet there? Are we done with all the chairs in there? There's some benches over here. Yeah, pull those out, please. Thank you. Okay, so we'll start here, and then we'll end down there. Okay. Uh, my name is Miles Folterman. I'm a member of Parish Presbyterian Church in Franklin, Tennessee. Franklin, Tennessee, just down the road. Uh, and uh, I have been in Nashville kind of off and on since 2007. I've been coming to conversations or, and, and uh, other series at Otter Creek for a little close to six years now, I think. Right. So, um, so thanks for having me. Thanks, Miles. Uh, my name is Eric Dozier, and I am coming to you from the Baha'i community of Nashville, yes. Tennessee. And uh, what do I do in the city? In the city, uh, I am the Director of Equity and Campus Culture at the Episcopal School of Nashville. Um, I am also um, a musician and a singer, songwriter, and uh, hopefully I'll get a chance to share some of that with you as well um, because that is a, a big part of my own personal ministry and very happy to be with you here today. Thank you. So we've never met before, so 
this is a story that uh, is deep, close to my heart. When Carr and I first moved here in 2009, some of the very first people who welcomed us to Nashville were the Baha'i community, ah. the Ferdosis. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, Tally, or which one? Well, the whole... The it's a, it's like Yeah, there, there's a whole... Uh, <laughs> Kenny and Camille. Oh yeah, yeah. Who are now in Brooklyn, yeah. but yeah, yeah, yeah. their mother and father. Oh yeah, and so, uh, yeah, far, uh, far So how, how many of around. you? Uh, and this is not a shaming question. How many of you know nothing about the Baha'i tradition? Just so we make sure you have some kind of. Okay, maybe give a little. Okay, so. Uh, what's your What's your elevator pitch for? Yeah, the Baha'i? yeah, my elevator pitch. <laughs> uh, the Baha'i faith centers around uh, three primary primary principles, and that's the oneness of God the oneness of humanity, and the oneness of religion. So Baha'is don't, um, uh, well, Baha'is, Baha'is believe, and I'll, I'll share this quote with you. Uh, there's a book that Baha'u'llah, who was the prophet founder of the Baha'i faith, wrote called The Hidden Words. Uh, there's a passage from that, uh, that scripture that says, Know ye not why we created you all from the same dust, so that no one would exalt himself over the other. Ponder at all times in your heart why you were created. And since you were created thusly, it is incumbent upon you to walk with the same feet, eat with the same mouth, and dwell in the same land, so that the signs of oneness may be manifest. So, um, so uh, the, the pivot around which all of the Baha'i teachings revolve is the oneness of humanity. Uh, and so we believe that there is one divine process that has been taking place from the beginning that has no beginning and it will go on until the end that has no end where God has progressively revealed his will to us and so in this particular dispensation or this this particular age uh, we're called to build unity on the planet and that's not just unity of the human family but also unity of thought and unity of conscience about the direction that we need to go as a human family so that's the elevator pitch Thank you. Have a good day. <laughs> uh, most famous behind America, Rain Wilson. Uh, so, yeah. So we are you. Can we are uh, you? You you could probably yeah. He's he's probably one of the one of the most well known. Uh, Andy Grammer's a Baha'i. Um, I don't know if y'all know his music. Um, let's see. Number number of folks. Dizzy Gillespie was a Baha'i. Uh, Alan Locke, who was the father of the Harlem Renaissance, was a Baha'i as well. So there are, there are a number of prominent Baha'is. Yeah, the influence on culture is strong. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm Josh Graves. I'm the preaching minister here. I'm also the associate young adult intern ministry apprentice. I <laughs> <laughs> All right. We'll start down here with Miles. So give me your opening thoughts, comments, perspectives on this idea of religious pluralism. Yeah, Miles. so... Um, you know, the, the term religious pluralism could be um, susceptible to misunderstanding, so it's probably useful just to kind of break it down and talk about what it could potentially mean, and, and then I'll kind of go down the path that I, that I kind of think of when I, when I think about this uh, concept. So, um, man is basically religious, and um, that is obvious in the world and apparent in the world. Uh, but it's also taught in scripture. So what do we mean when we say man is religious or has religion? Well, religion is basically a, a resolute commitment or, or set of commitments around which humanity orients life. So um, religion doesn't have to be something that you might think of as a traditionally Western thing. It, it doesn't have to be monotheistic. It doesn't have to be polytheistic. There are some uh, more nebulous forms of religious commitment. For instance, humanism. 
or uh, pantheistic monism, which is a, which is an Eastern concept when it comes to to religion. So um, those are. I think it's important for us not to get stuck on kind of the traditional. I go to a place where I worship on a weekly basis, or um, there's a priesthood involved in my particular religious kind of expression. We need to, when we're having this discussion, we need to look around and just recognize that everyone is religious. So when we have discussions, um, you're going to find that people's opinions and views about the world are rooted in those basic commitments. As far as what Scripture says about um, about being inherently religious, you can see in Psalm 19, for instance, that the heavens declare the glory of God. So, so His revelation in nature is obvious to all human beings, and um, in Romans chapter 1, Paul actually talks about the way in which humanity has taken that revelation from uh, and about God and what they do with it. So let me just read you a few verses from Romans chapter 1. Uh, when Paul says, starts off by saying, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. You can see in Acts 17 when Paul is in Athens, he's provoked because he sees the multiplicity of altars and idols that are in the city. It provokes him because his heart is broken for this city where people have taken the immortal, invisible God and they have made all kinds of debased versions of what he really is. Um, and we can come back to that a little bit. I want to I mention what pluralism is. And we can attack this from, from a couple different angles at least. Uh, we can just recognize that there's a multiplicity of religions in the world and that is um, something that we find in Scripture. We obviously find a multiplicity of religious expressions in Scripture. They're not commended to us in Scripture, but we just see that that's a fact of, of being in the world, is that there are multiple religions. Um, and then we could take pluralism to mean a celebration and promotion of religious diversity, and that is a concept that is at odds and incompatible with biblical Christianity. So that's problematic, and, and that's something we can discuss further, but that's definitely not the take that I'm going to take as we have the discussion today. Um, I think that Western society has become pretty much um, obsessed with pluralism, religious pluralism, uh, even religious about it, you might say. Their basic commitment is to religious pluralism. Um, it's not a state of affairs anymore, it's just a state of mind. Uh, it's, the, it's an unquestioned kind of thing that we just have to assume. The dignity of choosing one's religion is just simply assumed in, this, in the culture that we live in. And I want to share a couple of illustrations where that's borne out. Uh, in 1952, when he was president-elect of the United States, Dwight Eisenhower uh, said this, Our form of government has no sense unless it's founded in a deeply felt religious faith, and I don't care what it is. In 1985, uh, a book came out called Habits of the Heart, 
which studied individualism and commitment in American life. And uh, in that book, we meet a woman named Sheila Larson, who says this about herself. I believe in God. I'm not a religious fanatic. I can't remember the last time I went to church. My faith has carried me a long way. It's Sheilaism, just my own little voice. It's just try to love yourself and be gentle with yourself, you know, I guess, take care of each other. I think he would want us to take care of each other. And the authors concluded from this quote that this is the perfectly natural expression of current American religious life, a personal religion for each of us. So I think this is the kind of pluralism that needs to induce grief and anguish in every Christian. Um, as I said in Acts 17, Paul is provoked when he sees the way in which people debase themselves by worshiping false gods instead of the triune God. When you combine man's religiosity, his inherent religiosity, with his inherent depravity, you get idolatry. And pluralism really, I'm going to say, you know, maybe something that's not going to be well received, but um, is something, uh, pluralism is kind of a sanitized term for idolatry. There's one God. He says, you now shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a graven image. You shall not bow down and worship them. Um, when Jesus is asked by a lawyer in Matthew 22, what's the first and great commandment? He says, you shall worship the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and prophets hang on these commandments. So you should love God, the true God, the biblical God. Show sincere reverence. Keep yourself from idols, recognizing that salvation is from the triune God alone. John 3.16 God the Father um, so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. Jesus the Son says of Himself in John 14 in His high priestly prayer in the Last Supper with the disciples, He says that I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Me. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Salvation is of the triune God, the God of Scripture. Um, so that's how we love God as we confess that. How do you love your neighbor as yourself in light of these truths? Well, I'll leave that for a little bit later. I don't want to take up all the time. Who thinks about us? Okay. Yeah, you're next. Yeah, you're next. Are you next. panel too? Oh, yeah, he's on okay. the panel. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> I was late. So. Okay, oh, no, 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 okay. Um, so... Um, uh, according to Baha'i scripture, religion is that mystic feeling that connects man to God. Um, and um, uh, we find that uh, actually in everyone. Uh, that that um, uh, one of our uh, Baha'is are required to say obligatory prayers every day. And, and one of the first prayers that we learn is I bear witness, O oh my God, that Thou hast created me to know Thee and to worship Thee. I testify at this moment to my poverty and to Thy wealth, to my powerless and to Thy might. There is none other God but Thee, the help in peril, the self-subsisting. Um, and so when, when uh, we think about God, we, we uh, unequivocally state that there is one God. It's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, uh, but we also believe that there is, um, you know, as the Bible states, that uh, God's ways are so much higher than our ways and His thoughts so much higher than our thoughts, uh, that there is no way to directly access that God, and that is the reason why God sends His prophets and messengers to us. Uh, Baha'is refer to those messengers as manifestations of God. 
uh, these manifestations are like perfect mirrors that reflect the attributes of God. Um, and uh, just like humanity has moved through social stages of evolution from the, from the, uh, from the tribe to the city-state to the nation, and now we have a, 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 an opportunity to, to build uh, unity across the world, these manifestations come and they bring social, spirit, social teachings that also reaffirm the spiritual teachings of the past. Um, uh, uh, Baha'is consider these manifestations, among these manifestations, to be uh, uh, Abraham, Moses, Jesus, Muhammad, uh, in, the, uh, in this particular dispensation, the Bab, B-A-B, which, which is an Arabic term that means the gate, uh, who was a young man that lived uh, around the mid part of the 19th century who was martyred for his faith in Iran and Baha'u'llah which is an Arabic term which means the glory of God. Um, uh, we don't believe that religion is some kind of disjointed thing that just pops up across the, across the globe. We believe that religion is, uh, is as much a part uh, uh, of, of, of the processes that are going on, the, on in the world as photosynthesis. Uh, religions, they, they, they live, they have, a, you know, they have a shelf life. And uh, in every age and dispensation, God sends uh, messengers to renew the teachings uh, of, of his faith. So um, uh, as far as pluralism from a Baha'i perspective, we don't believe that there are a multiplicity of religions. We believe that there is one religion and one uh, grand uh, uh, conversation that is going on, uh, uh, that has been going on and that will continue to go on as we move through our stages of, of, of evolution as a, as a human family. Um, so. Um, we are we are um, we are commanded to consort with the people of all religious uh, uh, communities, and we do that uh, not because it's just a good thing to do, but it is because we are all inheritors of the great spiritual traditions of the planet. Um, and and uh, um, let me see what else did I. Um, you know, for instance, in, in, in the Quran, it says that God has made us man and woman, tribes and nations, so that we may know one another. Um, um, so, uh, so uh, um, for instance, how many of you know how to add? Right? How many of you know how to multiply? Okay, how many of you know how to, uh, to, to do calculus? Some of you taken calculus before? Okay, now who taught, so, so when you learn how to, uh, uh, I'll, get, I'll, I'll, give you, I'll give you an example. So, um, so uh, you go to school, you start at kindergarten per se. Um, now your kindergarten teacher who, who is teaching you math at that particular time, is not going to start you with calculus because, not because they don't know calculus, uh, not because they are bereft of the knowledge of higher order mathematics, but because you cannot do calculus before you learn what a number is, before you learn how to add, before you learn how to subtract. And I remember when I was uh, uh, doing calculus in high school, you do all of the, uh, you do all of these equations, and at the end of that equation, what do you have to do? You have to add a couple of numbers together. 
So all of it works together. Um, uh, uh, and, and so uh, your first grade teacher has, has uh, that knowledge of, of, of higher order mathematics, but they don't teach you higher order mathematics when you're four, uh, unless you're a genius. Um, and, uh, but as you, as you go, uh, we look at these manifestations as being like teachers in the classroom in all the, that are all in the same school. Uh, and so they're going to teach you based on what you, you can learn. Um, uh, when Baha'is are teaching this concept, we use a, 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 an example, uh, the example of Jesus, when he says there, there are many things that, 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 uh, that, that, that I have to tell you, but you cannot bear them now. Uh, Howbeit, when the spirit of tr truth has come, he will guide you into all truth. So, um, so, so as I said, we we believe that that uh, that that there is uh, one um, one religion, uh, and because there is one religion, because there is one human family, because there is one God. Uh, uh, that is our motivation for consorting with all of the religions on the planet. Uh, I'll share one more quick thing with you, because um, I'd rather hear you talk than hear me talk, because I hear me talk all the time. Um, Baha'u'llah has not brought into existence a new religion to stand beside the present multiplicity of sectarian organizations. Rather, he has recast the whole conception of religion as the principal force impelling the development of human consciousness. As the human race in all its diversity is a single species, so the intervention by which God cultivates the quality of mind and heart latent in that species is a single process. Its heroes and saints are the heroes and saints of all stages in the struggle. Its successes, the successes of all stages. This is the standard demonstrated in the life and the work of the master, and I'll tell you who that refers to maybe later, and exemplified today in a Baha'i community that has become the inheritor of humanity's entire spiritual legacy, a, leg a legacy equally available to all peoples on the earth. So I'll stop there. Thank you. Josh? Um, so I think it's important to look at Jesus in the Gospels when it comes to any conversation, uh, but especially this conversation, because Jesus interacts with Samaritans uh, far more than most rabbis did in the first century. And Jesus kind of threads this interesting, uh, he lives in this tension of inclusion and exclusion. And so he can see, for instance, a woman in the early parts of the Gospel of John, a Samaritan woman, uh, he can talk to her about not just religion, but actually the things that are going on in her life. Because for Jesus, her religion wasn't the most interesting thing about her. Right? If you read John 4 carefully, it starts off like this. A religious debate where people are using their brains to talk to each other. And then he moves to the heart. Hey, tell me about your baby daddy. Tell me about your girlfriend or your boyfriends. Tell me about what's going on in your life. And their whole conversation is reoriented. It's not intellectual, it's personal. Um, so whenever we're talking about interfaith, I always remind people, we're not talking about ideas, we're talking about people. Um, there's no such thing as Christianity. There's Christians who practice the teachings of Jesus in a religious way. There's no such thing as the Baha'i religion in that sense. It's, mm -hmm. There's 500 million, maybe a little generous, 300 million yeah, Baha'is yeah. trying to live yeah. it out. 
So it's a very, religion's a very personal thing. If you don't believe it, just try and talk about it at Thanksgiving or Christmas, right? <laughs> it's, it's extremely personal. And so I have a little bit of an allergy because I've sat on so many panels like this the last 15 years mm -hmm. where we just do the intellectual thing, but really what we need to do is the human thing. Tell me your story, let me tell you my story, mm -hmm. which means the work's harder to do because we got to do it one-on-one -on -one with people. we got to invite people into our homes. we got to go into their homes. We can't just hold a panel uh, on Sunday morning or at Lipscomb or Belmont and think, ah, oh, we're, we're such woke people, we have this diverse discussion. Mm -hmm. But Jesus interacted with these people in an intimate one-on-one -on -one way, and he saw Samaritans as capable of embodying the kingdom of God in a way that he didn't think some Jews could. And if you need a book, chapter, and verse on that, that's Luke chapter 10, that's what the Good Samaritan is about. Unless you can see that this Samaritan is embodying the things that I'm talking about. In the, in the witness of the kingdom of God, you don't actually understand what I'm doing. Now, he pushes, against, he pushes back against Samaritans. Um, and we could argue about what's the allegory for today to understand the Jew-Samaritan tension of today. I happen to think that it's the Christian-Muslim tension today is the perfect analog for the Jewish-Samaritan tension of the first century. But that's for another class. And a book. Yeah, or you can read yeah. the book. Yeah, thank you, Patrick, for pointing out. Um, oh, i got to get that book. So that's the first thing is I think as Jesus people, who most of this room is, um, this cannot be an intellectual only. This has to be a matter of the heart, and this has to be about actual friendships. Um, and not just token, well, my Muslim friend or my black friend or my Latino friend. These have to be real stories of how real people are living out the story that they believe. Um, so that's the first thing. Second thing is, um, I read a book several years ago that was really helpful to me on this subject. This, this goes to what you were saying. Um, we're all story creatures. And that, that can sound like, oh, I know, we're all living in a story. I've heard that. Yeah, yeah. No. E even what we would call secular sociologists are confirming this. Fantastic book called uh, The Storytelling Animal, which makes the argument that what separates a human from an aardvark is our need to tell sacred stories. And this sociologist, who's not a believer, I don't even think this sociologist is a theist, he looks at all these different civilizations in the history of the world, and he deduces that the things that hold civilizations together, the things that make cultures great and terrible, individuals great and terrible, are the stories we tell ourselves. Uh, now, some in our room are professionals at helping us unpacking these stories that we tell ourselves. But the idea is that you are the sum total of all the stories that you choose to believe, even the ones you're not aware of in your conscience. Um, and the classic example that the author uses in the storytelling animal is he talks about a young Austrian boy named Adolphus, A-D-O-L-F-U-S. And he talks about when Adolphus came of age, he was exposed to the operas of Wagner. And those of you who are more cultured than me, you can speak to this. That's as much as I know about Wagner. He wrote these grand epics, right? These narratives in the form of opera. So Adolphus is this young, struggling 19, 20-year-old. He may have been a painter. He kind of bounced, he couch surfed. Uh, and he goes because a friend takes him to see the work of Wagner. And he becomes enlightened, illuminated, captivated by the work of Wagner. And he realizes his life's purpose is to recreate uh, the Greco-Roman Empire that's captured in Wagner's opera for the state of Germany. 
Now this is an Austrian kid. You know who I'm talking about, right? Mm -hmm. This is an Austrian kid. He's not even German. <laughs> How did he pull that off? <laughs> and he creates this grand epic, right, about Aryan supremacy and uh, the inherent worthlessness of Jews because of the story that he was living in, the story that he privileged. So the author makes the point that one of the greatest things you can do as a human is to deconstruct the stories that guide your lives. Now, if you stop in deconstruction, that's called spiritual torture. Uh, for some people, that's called your 20s. <laughs> you just deconstruct everything. Well, I, I don't know about that. I don't trust that guy. When he said that, he's a hypocrite. That's deconstruction, and that's good. The problem is if you don't reconstruct, you get paralyzed. Mm -hmm. And hopefully, the church is the place, is for Church of Resurrection, where we help people reconstruct when life deconstructs you, so when life tears you down. So I would highly recommend that you consider that book called The Storytelling Animals to realize your family stories, your individual stories, your stories of athletic success or failure or academic success or failure or whatever, those are all stories that deeply are woven into how you see yourself. Okay, and then the last thing, I'll be really quick. I serve on the board for the Faith and Culture Center of Nashville. In fact, one of our members was just named Executive Director of Mallory Wyckoff. And the Faith and Culture Center um, takes Christians and Muslims and Jews. And Bethy Butler has helped do this. I don't know if Bethy's in here today. Actually, I think she's on vacation. Um, and brings Muslims, Christians, and Jews and Baha'i. Um, you guys get worn out because we ask you to do everything. But... <laughs> and we sit at tables and we learn each other's stories. And what I would just suggest to you is, uh, it's called a seat at the table. It's a program that Otter Creek helps to partner with. If you really want to know the Baha'i faith, you cannot learn it from one person on a family. It's a good start. Mm -hmm. If you really want to know Christianity, if you really want to know Islam, you have to be at tables with people, hearing about their lives. How do they react to hard situations? What, how did they end up in Nashville? Uh, that's the relational way that's much more effective than just intellectual jousting of theology. Mm -hmm. and, and we can we can connect you to that. Patrick knows them well. I know them well. Mm -hmm. If you're interested in that, we'd love to connect you to that. That's great. Thanks, panel. All right. Mm -hmm. Questions, thoughts, comments? It's your turn. Or we're doing a silent retreat in person. So go right in. Jump in there. Uh, well, I guess the best place to start is you said there's no such thing as, as Christianity. And, uh, well, I'd like to disagree with that. Um, and basically you said that really Christianity itself doesn't exist, but rather is defined by the way that people choose to practice it. Right? Is that correct? Well, I'm, I'm saying that what I'm saying is, okay, so hyperbole, number one, so understand that rhetorical. What I'm saying is there's no one way Christianity is expressed in the world. Mm -hmm. okay. there's, there's two and a half billion Christians on planet Earth. There's a billion and a half Muslims, right? So half the world makes up either the Christian or the Quranic narrative. So what I'm saying is there's two and a half billion ways. The way that my wife, Cara Graves, lives out her Christianity, it's very different than how I live out my Christianity. So that's my point, is there are two and a half billion expressions of Christianity. There's not a monolithic way sure. that it's expressed. Mm -hmm. But there is uh, an objective standard to the truth of Christianity. Jesus, right? Yeah, God and Jesus define what that is. And so even though there are two and a half billion people expressing it in different ways, they could, a lot of them could be expressing it incorrectly. They could be doing things which are inconsistent with 
Yeah, that's not hypothetical. That's real. All two and a half billion. Right? Mm -hmm. That's not well, hypothetical. Yeah, sure. But uh, what I mean is, you know, it's not just okay for someone to call themselves a Christian and just behave any way that they want, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. There's an objective standard to what they do in the way that they can be judged, and we don't have perfect access to that, but the Word of God tells us what that is, right? And we can find that. Uh, well, we can interpret that more or less accurately, right? But we're still able to judge when someone is not living in accordance with that faith, and there are still certain things that we need to be true. And so, when it comes to religious pluralism, just to tie it back to that, there are things that we know to be true as Christians that we should stand up for and be bold about, and which are contradictory to the truth comes from their faith. Sure. Okay. Yeah, is there a question? Well, there's not so much a question as like, I feel like there's a need for you to clarify what you think Christianity actually is. A need for me to clarify? Yeah. For well, the people who have listened to me preach for 10 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> well, I haven't listened to you preach. I've just heard what you said today. Okay. And you've just said that is defined. I'll, t I'll right. take you to coffee. I'll tell you everything that I know about Jesus. Well, tell me now. It's the Son of God raised from the dead. He's bringing back the new heavens and the new earth. Yeah. I, I, I mean, it's a whole big story. It's a whole big narrative. I, what, what, I'm what I'm curious about is what are you really saying? Like, what's behind what you're saying right now? Well... Often Are you? What I'm saying is, so I'm I'm trying to bring this back into a discussion about religious pluralism. I'm not really clear what your position on that is, but we're talking about Islam, and there are things that Chris, Christians claim, and which are written in the Word of God, which are contradictory to some of the things that Prophet Muhammad claimed. Sure. Mm -hmm. Also, can you address that for me and tell me what you think about that? Uh, I think that Jesus is how you get to the Father. I, I mean. I think you're bringing a lot of assumptions into just listening to me talk for 10 minutes that are just, like, that's what I'm trying to figure out. Well, you want me right to now to represent the whole doctrine of the Christian faith? Is that what you want me to do? No, I don't want you to do that, but I want to talk about religious pluralism. Okay. And I think it's something that's clear about Christianity is that Jesus says, you know, He's the way, the truth, and life. life. Yeah. Any way to the Father is through me. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it's this as well in Isaiah 40, verse 8. Yeah. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God stands. Okay, so maybe the question is, how do we live together with, in the midst of religious diversity? Is that what you're asking? Like, as a Christian, what do I think our responsibility is to our brothers and sisters who are not? Is that what you're asking? No, that's not what I'm asking. I'm trying to clarify what Christianity is and what your position. Christianity is is the response to the life, death, resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. That's yeah. the Christian faith. So tell me, how do you think that uh, is compatible with other religions or incompatible with them? Well, I think it's the truest. That's why I'm a Jesus person. But I also think it compels me to die for those who don't believe it, to serve those who don't believe it, to lay down my life for those who don't believe it. Which is why I said we have to get beyond the intellectualization of the conversation and get to real relationships. Mm -hmm. um, that's Otherwise, it's just it's academic. Yeah, it's just a university conversation. <coughs> okay, well, I've had enough of that one. Let's go to another question. You two can connect afterwards. Over there. Eric. Yeah. You said Baha'is believe believe that God sent prophets. What is y'all's approach on a spirit or the Holy Spirit or? Our approach on on the Holy Spirit. I wish I had a. a a chalkboard. So Baha'is 
Um, there's a symbol, and let me see if I can draw it for you. Oh, there, oh, there's yeah, big paper. Use that. Yeah, it's okay. I can I can draw it big enough so that you so that you can see. So I don't know if you can see this, but there's a symbol, three lines going across, with a line going down the middle. So. Uh, and this is, uh, uh, if you meet Baha'is and they have a ring on, this is called the ringstone symbol, but it's also an Arabic word, uh, which uh, means the glory of God. Um, and so the first line, the first horizontal line going across represents the realm of God. The line in the middle represents the realm of the manifestations. The line at the bottom represents the realm of humanity. And the line going down the center that connects all three of them is the Holy Spirit. So that's, that's, that's how we see the Holy Spirit as uh, interacting with all of those three, three realms. Uh, it's like the breath in the body. Uh, uh, and um, so, I mean, does that kind of yeah. speak so to So the Spirit is involved from the beginning of birth to death? The, 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 the Spirit is, yeah, the Spirit is and always has been uh, uh, behind the, uh, the, the, the creative emanation of the <coughs> all of creation. Alright, one more question. Do you have a David? So, I want to get you. Not allowed. <laughs> growing up, I was uh, always encouraged to stay within my tribe. Um, and so, of uh, you know, the Church of Christ and kind of stay there. And as I got older, I realized that Christianity, that Christians were expressed outside of my Church of Christ world. And now, as I've gotten even older, I'm realizing that we have brothers and sisters who believe very similar things to what Christians believe with many faiths. So, how... If we are living in a place of pluralism, how do we know what is true versus like how, what is the discernment? How do we discern rather than just accepting it all and saying it's all okay and it all becomes so diluted? So how, I guess, how do you discern what is true? What is the, when we picture it up against? Okay, good. So we'll do this. We'll, uh, we'll start here and then we'll probably need to dip out here soon. And then we'll yeah. end with Miles. And let, let me see if I can take yours and come back to what you were asking about. Um, famous African Christian scholar named Kwame Bediaka. I ha His work is incredible. He wrote a book called Jesus and the Gospel of Africa. Every American Christian should read this book. You can tell who has kids right now. They're all going to get, <laughs> they're all going to get their kids. Uh, so Bediaka says this in his introduction. Um, he says, the test of Christianity in the 21st century, this is a devout believer in Africa writing to Americans. He says, the test of Christianity in the 21st century is this. Can Christianity be good news to those who don't believe in Jesus? Now, what he's saying there, he's saying a lot, but what he's saying is, if you're a Jesus person, and the way that you live out your Jesus faith is not good news, for your Baha'i brothers and sisters or neighbors, or your Muslim neighbors, is it really good news? Because he argues Jesus lived in such a way that helped the flourishing of Samaritans, of Pharisees. Now, did he challenge, did he judge, did he engage, which is your question? Yeah, of course he did. But ultimately, his life is a litmus test for the flourishing of Jerusalem and Israel. I would argue that's a litmus test for Otter Creek. If Otter Creek isn't good news for Baha'is, 
Are we really practicing Jesus in the kingdom of God? If we're not good news for Muslim immigrants in Nashville, are we, are we actually practicing Jesus in the kingdom of God? So my simple answer to you is the way that we evaluate absolute truth is the life of Jesus. It's not on our idea of interpretation, as important as it is. It's the actual living presence of Jesus amongst us as a community, which takes a lot of discernment. And I, I, I'd like to speak to that as well, um, you know, because because I think, you know, I grew up uh, uh, Baptist and I was a I was a minister for five years and I graduated from Duke Divinity School. So I uh, have officially lived half my life as a Baha'i and half my life as a Christian and not just as a Christian in general, but as a, as uh, uh, as a as an African-American Christian who actually knows the history and the and and the and the and the complicitness of the American church in slavery and uh, uh, and and uh, um, racism and all of these different things uh, and oftentimes when I do my I do a lot of workshops around gospel music particularly for people that that uh, don't have uh, necessarily don't necessarily have a touchstone to black gospel music as it comes out of the black church. Um, and one of the one of the questions that that people ask me oftentimes about black Americans and Christianity is they say, how in the world could black people accept the religion of their oppressors? First of all, black people have been Christians for a very, very long time. One of the oldest churches in the world is the Coptic Church in Ethiopia. So, so we, uh, and you know, Jesus Christ was not from Michigan and most likely did, did not have blonde hair and blue eyes like he has been depicted. Uh, as a matter of fact, he's described with, uh, as having woolly hair and bronze and feet that were like bronze. So, uh, so, you know, we have, I think that we are at a point where we have a lot to unravel when it comes to what Christianity really really is and a lot of times what we practice is theology and not Christianity um, uh, um, you know I'm, I'm an educator as well and, and, and work with a lot of di uh, a lot of diverse people and and uh, uh, give a lot of talks around diversity and equity in Nashville Nashville now in the public school system has hundred and forty languages spoken in the school system every day thirty percent of the children that go home from uh, that school speak another language when they go to their house because a lot of them are probably second generation immigrants. We have an opportunity to actually get to know each other. A lot of times we interact with each other theoretically. You know, we don't interact with each other intimately. You know, uh, I know about Islam because I have Islamic friends. I know about Christianity, one, because I grew up in it, but because I have Christian friends. I know about white folk and brown folk and all these folks because the community that I'm a part of is representative of every population on the planet, not just living in separate neighborhoods or separate conclaves, but living in the same neighborhoods, building communities, all of these different things. And our, our faith does have to be, in my opinion, informed by relationship. The first person that Jesus healed was a Roman centurion's daughter. And they said, why are you healing Romans? 
So, 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 you know, those are things that, that I think theologically we have to wrestle with. Um, uh, uh, but also, I think that when it, and I want to just kind of speak to something that you brought up, brother, about, like, how do we know? And I think that the, the, the way uh, a Baha'i would answer that question, or I would as a Baha'i answer that question like, uh, like this, based on my understanding of, of the Baha'i revelation, Baha'i scripture, we, we would not know if these manifestations and prophets do not come and also serve as an interpretive measure. When Jesus came, he had to reinterpret the scripture of uh, uh, reinterpret the scripture of Israel so that they knew how to live their scripture out. Now he said that I did not come to destroy the law and the prophets. Uh, the, uh, I, he said I did not come to destroy the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. You know, and so and so there is even a, I think a manifestation in our uh, Judeo-Christian tradition that actually speaks to this role that Jesus played as an interpreter of scripture. So we believe these manifestations come as an interpretive measure and that if we are, if we are not clear that this process is going on, what we will do is we will divide ourselves along religious lines. Now, of course there are differences between Islam and Christianity and Judaism and Buddhism and Hinduism and all these different things. Another role that these manifestations play is that they, that, that they abrogate laws, social laws, that are no longer relevant for this particular day and age. So, 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 so they do come and they change some of those laws. So maybe the reason why we're seeing a difference is because if people are not responding when these manifestations come, then they hold on to the, to the same laws. We're also told that if two people are arguing about religion in the Baha'i faith, we're told this, that you're both wrong because that's not the purpose of religion. Religion has, the purpose of religion is to unite humanity and help us to unite around, around common principles. We're even told that if religion becomes a cause of division, it should be swept away and thrown into the fire because that is not the purpose for us being on the planet. Now, now, you know, we have a lot of segregation in our society, and we are kept from each other. We have a lot more in common than we are willing to think. And I've, and I've had several conversations with, uh, when I was first investigating the Baha'i faith, and I was, I, I was in divinity school when I first started investigating the Baha'i faith, and I was having a conversation with these, with Christian ministers. One was Baptist, one was Presbyterian, and one was Church of God in Christ. And so I asked them, were Muslims going to heaven? So they said, well, yeah, if they believe in Jesus. So I pulled out a Quran that I had with me, and I said, well, they obviously believe in Jesus. They have a, 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 um, a, there, there's actually tons about Jesus and Mary in the Quran, which I didn't know until a Muslim brother of mine says, hey, we like Jesus too. Um, and uh, uh, and so they said, well, let me oh, no, I'm sorry. Yeah, let's, yeah. let's find okay. our landing place. Okay, so this, can... this, is, this is the landing place. We have been living in a civilization that has intentionally separated us from one another. We have to be as deliberate in trying to come together and find out about one another as we're doing our theology. Because we also believe that the essence of faith is fewness of words and abundance of deeds. He whose words exceed their deeds 
know this, that their death is no better than their life. To answer your question and just to make a few final remarks, um, so um, all scriptures read out by God and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and raising up in righteousness of man of God may be fully furnished for every good work. Um, so although all scripture is breathed out by God, we recognize when we're in the scriptures that there are certain mandates, certain things that are revealed to us in scripture that are more important than other things. So I think your question is getting to what is core Christianity? You know, what are the things that you absolutely have to believe with, believe in to say, I'm a Christian? Um, and I would, I would direct you what, to what Paul says in Romans 10, which is that he says, um, if, uh, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that, that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Um, now there's all kinds of things built into confessing that Christ is Lord, and, and that's something we have to continue that conversation about. Mm-hmm. Um, that being said, it means more than Jesus was a prophet. It means more than Jesus was a wise rabbi. Um, it means all the things that Jesus said about himself. And he made a lot of lofty claims about himself um, that we have to reckon with seriously. Um, Josh made a good point. This is my, my final remark. Mm-hmm. Josh made a good point, which is that uh, this has to be a personal conversation. And I appreciate your personal question, you know, because mm-hmm. you want to love your neighbor as yourself. You want to be able to, to talk with them, wrestle with them honestly about these issues. Mm-hmm. Um, so everything that I've said has been personal. I don't think that there's a neat partition between the theological and the personal. I don't agree with Josh about that. Mm-hmm. If it's intellectual, if, you're, if your heart is because you love your neighbor and you want to, you want to um, communicate to them truths about Scripture and truths about God, that's not just theological speak. It's yeah. because you love your neighbor and you want them to understand truth. Yeah. So, you know, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, for the sake of the gospel, he becomes all things to all people. That's yeah. what we want to do as Christians. We want to become all things to all people. But there's a warning. And that warning is this. In Ezekiel chapter 3, God says to the prophet, he says, if, you say to the wicked, you sh- uh, if I say to the wicked, you shall surely die, and you give him no warning, nor speak to warn the wicked from his wicked way in order to save his life. That wicked person shall die for his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hands. And that's a serious warning for Christians because this is not merely an academic discussion about, well, whether who's in or who's out. This is something that we as Christians have to reckon with. Are we going to answer to God in judgment for the fact that we didn't want to be weird to our neighbors and so we were complicit in, in their condemnation? Yeah. That is something that we have to be very, we have to take very seriously. Mm-hmm. Some of you were here for the panels on evangelism and discipleship and on hell, and you probably heard some opinions that were somewhat ambivalent or indifferent about evangelism and about the doctrine of judgment. Not surprising to me, given the opinions that were expressed about the reality of hell and what evangelism and discipleship really are. But if you're convicted that you have an obligation to your neighbor to love your neighbor as yourself and to communicate your love for God to your neighbor, you're going to take those warnings seriously, and you're going to be zealous for evangelism about sharing the good news of the gospel with your neighbor, and you're going to be zealous for bringing them into the church, God's chosen people for salvation. So go take that hope with you. It's not doom and gloom. It is hope. But we have to recognize that um, salvation is found in Christ alone, and that's the only name given under heaven among men by which men shall be saved. Give our panel a round of applause. Woo! Yes, yes.